You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This is Father James Scholl, and I'd like to continue with the 11th chapter called Truth, Liberty, and Law of At the Limits of Political Philosophy in our Introduction to Political Philosophy. This continues the third, fourth section of the book, which is devoted to those things which we would have whether there were uh, problems of sin and evil or not. And it's an important chapter in the sense that uh, it defines what our intellect and wills and our order um, would be or need to be uh, as we uh, think about them. We begin, as usual, with this time, two quotations from Samuel Johnson, one from April 14, 1778, where he says, It seems clear that the happiness of society depends on virtue. In Sparta, theft was allowed by general consent. Theft, therefore, was, uh, was there in Sparta, not a crime. But then there was no uh, security either. And what a life uh, must they have had when there was no security. Without truth, there must be a uh, dissolution of society. As it is, there is so little truth that we are uh, almost afraid to trust one another, to trust our ears. But how should we, how should we be if falsehood were multiplied ten, ten times. Society is held together by communication and information. The end of the quote. And the second one is from uh, 1768, or uh, a conversation between Boswell and Jonathan, a short one. Boswell, I asked him whether, as a moralist, he did not think that the practice of law in some degree hurt the uh, nice feeling of honesty. Johnson, why, no, sir. If you act properly, you are not to uh, deceive your clients with false representations of your, of your opinion. You are not to tell lies to the judge, in the court. So we begin by considering the grounding, uh, the grounding law. In 1778, Boswell recorded the above uh, first conversation with Samuel Johnson on the relationship between truth, virtue, and society. In the second conversation, Johnson suggested that the law uh, could and should be honorable. It is in these relationships that the contrast between an autonomous modernity and a philosophy, philosophical order based on a reality open to man but not uh, made by him can be seen most effectively or most clearly. The web of communication, as Johnson called it, that holds society together is manifested in law, 
and its result should be a liberty that is based on virtue, truth, and honesty. The multiplication of falsehood must uh, result in an uh, increase in a, an insecure society in one, at, uh, in one that literally cannot believe its own ears. The most destructive philosophy that can be found in any society uh, is that which does not uh, believe in, in principle that truth is possible. Law is rooted in something deeper than itself, in ethics and in morals, included, uh, included in truth. Law does not arise from an abstract mind unaffected by any um, prior uh, content or condition in, uh, the, in that to which it addresses itself. Ethics and morals are in turn grounded in what is, in being, particularly in the kind of being uh, to whom the law is uh, consciously directed, that is, to someone who is capable of understanding and observing it. Because it establishes the order of the city, law is an appeal to intelligence to an intelligence that knows why there is a city and the sorts of ra uh, rational beings who inhabit it. Law has an educative function and is in its own turn subject to the norm of a, an intelligence grounded in the experience of what man is. The existence of the being who is to observe the law, is itself not caused by the being in whom this law-directedness capacity exists. Politics and law not only do not create or cause man to exist in the first place, they do not make what it is to be a man either. Law, for this very reason, is related to what is traditionally called the higher law, which is manifested uh, through reason and reflection on the reality of a limited, uh, finite being uh, who can know of a being who is certain a certain kind of being. The moderation of classical political philosophy is based on the limitation that man as such is not made by man. Law like death, salvation, happiness, friendship, and virtue, uh, when it confronts its own limits, finds itself led to questions that it uh, cannot solve by itself. But these questions uh, legitimately arise because of the need and reality of law. If it is a, if it is good that the political and social being exists, man, uh, that is, then it is good that law exists as an essential uh, element of what it means uh, to be political. Yet once the laws are formulated 
on the basis of man's reason and freedom and experience, they, ha they lead us to ask uh, their end or purpose even when observed. It is at this point that law touches metaphysics and revelation. St. Thomas Aquinas argued, however, that positive, that is, civil, man-made uh, law, ought to be directed to the majority of people who are not perfect. A wealth of wisdom and insight is contained in such a remark. It is reasonable to take to acknowledge our factual uh, imperfections. Aquinas was not uh, against perfection or the effort to define it. He agreed with the classical uh, Greeks and with St. Augustine. The effort to understand man in his perfection is in itself a function of human happiness and intelligence. Aquinas rather meant by this remark that law was directed primarily to those who were not perfect, that that lack intelligence or virtue uh, uh, will be a fact in many circumstances and in most lives. If we insist on the uh, strict observations of each positive law or make every virtue a law and every vice a crime, we will end up with <clears throat> something uh, more dangerous than if we allowed for them uh, for the fact that many people will not be able or willing uh, perfectly to observe many laws in common usage. This position of Aquinas did not maintain that the effort to know the law or to observe it and justify it was in vain. The non-observance of the law did not mean necessarily that the law was as stated was wrong. It meant that for a variety of reasons, including in particular bad will, it was not uh, observed uh, in this or that specific uh, case, in that specific, this or that specific case. Non-observance, in fact, may mean that the law was right. The commandment holds even if the violation be widespread. The fact of error or a moral evil is not an argument against the truth or good that is contained in the law being violated. Crime and vice take their meaning from what is, from what ought to be done. The intelligibility of error, uh, crime, uh, evil, or disorder takes its primary content from that against which it stands or acts. The knowledge of evil or vice is not evil, but good and necessary. The next section is called Law and Intelligibility. Plato took great pains to ensure that his uh, potential philosophers 
would uh, not be corrupted by the uh, faulty example of the poets and the uh, heroes uh, taught under the uh, authority of the laws of the city. But he recognized that the fullness of moral education included an accurate knowledge of vice and evil. This knowledge of what is disordered uh, should not have come from evil deeds of the, uh, of the young themselves, even if that is one possible, though not a welcome, origin of such knowledge. But they should know it from reading, uh, experience in observing others, and instruction in the wisdom of as the elders in speech and in poetry. Even while knowing what evil is, is possible, it is possible to be virtuous in a world in which vice exists and even uh, predominates. Any mature adult who did not know evil as an intelligible concept was quite dangerous. He did not have the full intellectual comprehension of any virtue or of the nature of the world in which he had to exist. This full knowledge included the knowledge of the vice that is opposed to the virtue. That is, knowledge included the uh, reasons why the vices were vices in a rational being capable of virtue and vice. It included an intelligibility factor, a factor discovered, not uh, made, by the human intellect. Knowledge as such is good. It is only desire or will that can use it for purposes of actual vice or virtue. Or, as Chesterton quaintly put it, we should uh, all commit crimes even the most heinous ones, but we should do so in novels and stories. Uh, we write, not in the deeds that we ourselves do. The integrity of the, of the human condition requires that the law retains the intelligibility of principle, even if it is frequently violated. Modernity is an attempt to excuse or to exempt man from this obligation uh, to an objective order. It was designed to produce a law which no higher, the modernity was produced to produce a law which no higher content than itself. But doing what is right depends on more than what was stated in the law. There is a relation between uh, reality, the reality, relative virtue of a people, and the content of the law on the books. Soulcraft is statecraft. The philosophical enterprise, the understanding of what is happening, remains operative even in the worst state. Whatever the nature of the regime may be, what is good or evil is established 
by philosophical argument and not by willed law alone. The purpose of the human intellect is to discover this good or truth, a discovery that includes the deviations from this good, even those in one's own polity. Philosophic doubt or theoretic relativism in which all opinions are equal makes truth and law uh, as an appeal to reason impossible because it identifies truth with opinion. We should not forget that many things, particularly in uh, politics, are at best matters of opinion or lack of uh, the kind of certitude that is due uh, to more philosophical or mathematical sciences. This fact lies at the origin of authority as a valid principle of political philosophy. The integrity of the law requires that its uh, violators have the possibility both of understanding why they are wrong in doing and going counter to the law and of uh, repenting the disorder uh, they put into the world by this violation. Human wholeness requires the real possibility based on introspective awareness of the causes and effects of our actions of acknowledging one's errors and faults, even of a willingness to be punished for them. This requirement does not hold that everyone will so repent, even given the opportunity. But without this possibility of repentance, men will not recognize the disorder in their own actions. Even if one re, uh, repents of his admittedly evil actions, it may still be prudent for the polity to uh, proceed with civil sanctions. The area of the highest things, thus, is not coterminous with that of uh, the uh, polity, even though the polity does live by and reflect the higher things like justice and mercy in its own realm. Civil law has a vested interest in upholding the truth or integrity of the laws in the light of its very uh, non-observance uh, by uh, the kind of beings who are subject uh, who are subject of any polity. The task of upholding this truth or validity is that of the philosopher or even the prophet, both of whom are outside of the city, but not outside of human nature. But the uh, philosopher or prophet cannot forget that uh, many, many philosophers and prophets uh, can themselves be subject to corruption uh, as much as, if not more, than ordinary human beings. There are 
false prophets and wild philosophers who reject truth. The ease with which we can break uh, good laws does not um, deny that there are good laws. Promulgation. When St. Thomas Aquinas placed promulgation as part of the very definition of law, he directed our attention to the relationship between law, truth, and freedom. All codes of law provide for the uh, uh, terms of uh, promulgation of uh, new laws of the time it might uh, reasonably be expected uh, to take for those citizens uh, to whom the law is directed to learn of its existence. With its knowledge, they can change gradually their own habits and, um, and conditions to be able to observe uh, law in a normal fashion. Although this knowledge is largely um, common sense, we would miss something if we did not uh, realize that Aquinas had in mind, or if he did not realize what he had in mind, by this truth of promulgation. Law is mind directed to mind. The law is to be uh, ruled by argument. The city is to be ruled by argument, not force. This communication between mind and mind is as much an aspect of uh, natural as of civil law. At the beginning of the Republic of Plato, in a famous scene, Polemarchus and his friends uh, stop Socrates the way back from the Piraeus uh, to insist that he uh, return to uh, the house of Sophos uh, for an evening of discussion. In playful, a playful manner, Socrates uh, inquired about why he should so return. And Polemarchus replied that he uh, should look around and see that there are more of his men than of Socrates's. Socrates suggested uh, that another way besides coercion uh, to go about this uh, same request might be possible. <clears throat> Indeed, uh, instead of threatening uh, to force him by, uh, to return by virtue of greater numbers, perhaps it would be possible to take another approach, namely to persuade him to return. This persuasion is what happened. The whole atmosphere of the Republic is bathed in the light of argument, not force. In this beginning of the Republic, a book that is conspicuous for not being based directly on law, but on the practical wisdom of the philosopher king uh, to account for the limits of law, we see the contrast 
of coercion and persuasion foreshadowed uh, for the rest of political philosophy. At the outset, Aquinas established the fact that law is not primarily coercion. He did this subtly by simply not listing coercion as one of the four essential elements in the definition of law. Coercion is not found uh, to be within the definition of law. Aquinas was not so naive as to think that coercion uh, did not exist. He did not deny that coercion is reasonable in certain circumstances. Its ultimate purpose is to reestablish reason, at least indirectly, in the life of the life of the lawbreaker. Coercion is only reasonable, however, when persuasion is uh, inoperative or fails. Coercion has its own intelligibility uh, once human nature and its dire conditions are accurately understood. The end of the law is not to coerce even when it is reasonable to coerce, but to persuade. This persuasion may only come uh, long after the actual coercion in, uh, understand, in the understanding of the one who needs to be coerced. But law addresses the intellect of the person who is being coerced with the claim of reason. Law does not reach its essence until it does persuade. Thus, all unjust laws, uh, all unjust laws, since it is unreasonable, cannot really uh, persuade. But this capacity of law is to persuade is rooted in the fact that both the lawgiver and the law receivers uh, share reason in common, both in existing cities and in the cities in speech down the ages. The fact of revelation does not violate this principle. The law is the law of freedom when the law is understood to be a prudent or true expression of what is to be done based on what is, on the reality of what is given. When Aquinas asked whether everyone is subject to the law, he distinguished law as coercion from law as an intelligible proposition addressed to active intellects. The good and intelligible man who understands uh, the uh, proposition of the law uh, to see that it is reasonable is not coerced by the law. He observes the law as the philosopher king obeys the law because it is reasonable to do so. This idea was the very same one that we find in Plato's laws uh, with their uh, famous preambles. The liberty of the law is never apart from the reasonableness of the law. Aquinas recognized, for example, that 
many of the precepts of the law were not obvious and might have been otherwise in their uh, formulation. If this variability were the case, how can the law be said to be reasonable or unobeyed? In a democratic society, the word obedience is often thought to be pejorative. Uh, this uh, distrust of obedience to law arises because a philosophical liberal society that defines itself as the as a proposition of theoretical relativism uh, on the position that no truth is possible must see uh, any obedience as an appeal to force, not a mutual uh, reason objectively shared by citizen and lawmaker. Obedience to a perfectly good reason uh, to be, uh, is a perfectly good reason on which to base our action. This argument about the need of reason in uh, natural human affairs foreshadows its own way, in its own way the reasonableness of the emphasis on obedience uh, in Revelation. Obedience is quite a necessary and useful aspect of action and is often a most helpful aspect of, uh, of thought capacity uh, to come to the truth. Obedience to law uh, supposes both freedom and, and truth. Obedience to the law is itself uh, a rational proposition uh, whether it takes the, uh, whether it is to be in the family, uh, which are found only two uh, adults uh, with fully disclosed rational facilities, or in a polity in which many free uh, citizens uh, uh, decide. The argument for government not rooted exclusively in an Augustinian theory of the fall, which has its own intelligibility, recognizes that human action presupposes many alternatives, not all of which are bad. Indeed, even within the range of uh, definitely bad actions, a wide variety of alternatives with varying degrees of disorder are discovered. Obedience is grounded in the fact that many alternatives are possible, uh, that not all of these alternatives can be or need to be put into effect. And therefore, uh, some alternative must be chosen by a responsible authority if the community is to exist uh, as a community. To do anything, a decision must be made which will not normally command complete uh, agreement. This case can be understood and be and the reasons to follow it uh, can be also comprehended. 
obedience is itself rooted in reason. To be obedient and to be reasonable are not diametrically opposed positions. Without obedience, we could not live in society. Even in a hypothetically a perfect society, we would still need obedience because one alternative must be selected to the exclusion of the others, which are all good. The more we know, therefore, the freer we are, and therefore the more alternatives are we have to choose from. Obedience and freedom are not opposed uh, but aspects of the same uh, reality. Argument and law. What lies behind the idea of promulgation is an abiding respect for argument and abiding respect for the nature of human thinking. Argument is not merely a product of theoretical reason but more especially a practical reason of what is to be done as well as of what is true. What Aquinas means by promulgation of the law included both this prior argument about what we uh, about what we are to do and what was the truth of our uh, position and the addressing of the result of the argument to the mind which was initially which was initially asked not coerced to obey it the law remains to be promulgated even to those who do not observe it actions persuasive of a good law remain even to argue with the conscience of the of the doer uh, who acts contrary to the law. Obedience to the law might very well mean agreement or persuasion. It might also, it might not also. In this latter case, there needed to be a reasonable argument uh, to follow the law when the reasons for the law are not uh, agreed upon, or an argument uh, for the coercion uh, to force conformity uh, if needed to be uh, when the good or uh, existence of the community was at stake. All of this reflection had to be located within a system that allowed for the discussion uh, to continue even while uh, uh, life went on in uh, terms of obedience to the law. Tradition meant the accumulation of laws and customs, good and bad, uh, passed down uh, uh, from those reasonable beings who came uh, before us. The thought of the past of the past obliged us, uh, not because it was past, but because it was thought with which we had to reckon. We might be able to prove that old traditions or laws are wrong, 
but we had to try to prove it on some objective basis and not merely on the basis that of the fact that it was old. The presumption, as Burke uh, would have it, is in their favor, in the favor of the Lord. In Chesterton's memorable phrase, if you see a fence across uh, a trail, the revolutionary shouts, chop it down because it is there. But the proper procedure is quite the opposite. If the fence is there, leave it there because it was put there uh, uh, for a rational purpose by some ancient, by some ancestor. So it had a reason it wasn't just there for nothing. Uh, once we discover why the fence was put there, however, we can take it down uh, because uh, then and only then can we argue with the man who put it up. That is, we can treat him as a rational being, even though he is dead. Constitutions and other uh, uh, fundamental doctrines, documents, uh, fall into this background. The self-evident truths uh, we hold uh, remain self-evident even uh, when philosophical passion denies there are such things. A thing which cannot be held in one age cannot be held in any other age. The intelligibility of law, even civil law, is addressed to all men. Law is intended to be uh, to, is intended to command the reason, the reasonable reflection of all, uh, in whatever era or polity. Aquinas argued that the law was to be promulgated because the law, to be law, had to be had to recognize that those asked to observe the law were themselves uh, endowed with reason. Even if only a few or only a wise uh, person might understand the uh, intricacies of the truth or practice, as was uh, often the case uh, with more difficult principles of the law uh, or uh, of life, this difficulty uh, did not lessen the need to uh, preface laws with arguments uh, that stated why this or that law is in practice uh, and its particularities is justified. A society um, uh, to survive could not be ruled mostly by coercion. It had to be ruled by law, that is, by willing subject, uh, by subject who also willed both the law and the truth of the law. St. Thomas justified civil disobedience when law was contrary to reason. He did not exempt anyone from the burden of reason. Reflection on vice. Let me here put a good word in for vice. 
for what is the opposite of virtue. When it comes to intelligibility, we are uh, obliged to know both virtue and vice. Law needs to be to pay some attention to vice, especially that which harms others, as all vice does. When Aquinas argued that any civil society had to tolerate the existence of certain vices uh, because their uh, suppression might well entail greater vices, greater evils, he had uh, no intention of claiming that the tolerated vice or fault would not remain just what it was, a vice. The tolerated vice would subsequently bring about its own dire effects, even if the effects might be less than other uh, had it not existed. The total uh, composite of the human condition would include a multiplicity of various vices as well as virtues of various virtues. Uh, one could distinguish uh, one society from another by the mixture and uh, components, uh, proportions of its virtue, various vices. In some societies, one had to worry about being robbed, and others about being lied to, and still others about being shot, uh, and others all three. In Judeo-Christian theology, the doctrine of the fall is proposed in order to account for the fact that and multiplicity of actual crime and disorder that exist among men. <clears throat> if we read the classical authors, we will find that the same disorders described in Scripture were uh, prevalent in societies without revelation. Human nature left to itself without law or uh, custom was by no means a happy affair. Thucydides, in speaking of the plague and the revolutionary revolution on Corsaira, or Aristotle, speaking of the uh, reason why we find vices recurring in all societies, held that some root disorder was found among men. Whether this disorder could ever be removed is a question um, uh, fraught with perplexity, even philosophical danger. Intellectually, the origins of modern theology or ideology can be argued to lie in the notion that all evils can be removed by political or economic or psychological means. The greatest crimes to recall Aristotle are not the results of want or passion, but the results of a bad philosophy. Paul Johnson echoed this observation when he pointed out that the greatest crimes of the 20th century were caused by intellectuals who gained political power 
in order to improve mankind. Aristotle maintained that the cure for the greatest crimes is philosophy, that is, by argument to establish why crime is crime. For Christianity, the correction of philosophy uh, and of crime, uh, too, for that matter, uh, depended on something more than philosophy. As an example of this, of the continuity of this tradition, uh, the remarks of John Paul II, given on the 22nd of January 1990 in um, Guinea-Bissau in Africa, are worth uh, citing here. The Church knows how much the Christian image of man, of his dignity, and of his destiny is projected in a certain way on all sectors of life. Christ fully reveals man to himself. It is the announcement of this uh, revelation that leads humankind to rediscover the values of its humanity. What is to be noted in this passage, uh, reflective of Christian intellectual tradition, is not that the claim of revelation to deal with itself, but its relation to man's understanding of himself, uh, of, his, of the value of his humanity. Human understanding by itself can and does come to serious errors, brilliant ones as we have called them, about what man is. Christianity's debate, both with antiquity and modernity, is on these issues. Crimes in their total intelligibility include something more than disruption of the well-being of the polity. Statecraft must be dependent on soulcraft, but the soul is related directly to the divinity. For Christianity, this means means to address the fact of sins or evils in their fullest extent did not lie totally within human reason, however much it is not against reason to seek to understand what such disorders are. Human reason, however, uh, recognized something wrong with its own powers to deal with its own aberrations. Grace does not oppose reason, but reason by itself is not uh, simply grace. Even more fundamentally, grace heals nature by addressing nature's own aberrations and uh, uh, redirecting them. In this argument for the need of revelation, Aquinas did not begin with revelation, but from those insoluble issues, from either the ins uh, inseparable imperfections uh, that perplex us all 
at every turn, or the nature of uh, thought itself. Plato had realized that we, we could not rest content with crimes that were not punished uh, in this polity or, or good acts that were not uh, rewarded uh, either. The philosophical discussion of immortality had political roots. Uh, we know uh, without too much reflection that the greatest evil as well as the greatest crimes and wrongs originate in the human spirit, in the hidden area of our being that is not capable of uh, penetration by normal civil law, even in spite of any Habesian fear of death. Aristotle had noticed that the tyrant wanted to make all thoughts of citizens public in order to control their actions. The effort to gain control of our thoughts, even our uh, most virtuous or most vicious thoughts, was seen by the classical writers to be destructive of human nature. Yet, acts of vice do exist, and they are manifested, uh, manifested and destructive of any civil order. They corrupt the good of others as well as the good of their doer. At first sight, it would seem that civil society ought to reach into our thoughts uh, centers in order for the common good to be uh, achieved. But Aquinas denies this possibility. Why? Because he says that it is better that the state uh, do not perform its functions of directly commanding our thoughts, even if it could, Aquinas did not deny that our desires needed control, even for the highest ends of the politics. It is one thing to argue that the tolerant or liberal state ought not to control our thoughts, and another to maintain that these uncontrolled thoughts will have no dire effect on the civil order. The control of thought that might result in acts of vice or crime, however, is properly a function of man himself who has the thoughts of his acquiring virtues and eliminating vices. If we are to leave mankind responsible for his act, for his act we must leave their thoughts, even their most uh, horrendous ones, uh, not to mention uh, uh, their most elevated ones to themselves. And yet, we should not deny the fact that the origins of vice uh, lie not primarily in our habits or our urges or passions, but in our thoughts and hearts, in what we justify ourselves in believing uh, about the world. A kind of intellectual vacuum is, uh, or incompleteness existed in the very heart 
of classical legal philosophy over the question of man's inner life and of its obvious relation to uh, public order. Law and Thought Revelation, among its other functions, is directed to the very thought that uh, thoughts that do cause disorder in life and politics. These disorders resulting from our thoughts are realities to be uh, reckoned with. They are perplexing to the human mind uh, before any question of revelation arises. Aquinas was quite clear that because he is our end, that God is our end, he is that which is. It is proper, a proper concern of God that we not only act correctly, but think and desire correctly. God also had to address the free creature freely. No sound theology denies this. The admonitions of revelation the admonition not to covet or not to look greedily, were capable of rejection. The law and the truth in the human creature remained subject to freedom, even in the case of dealing with the divinity. When the civil law might uh, prudently do so, however, it is not co coterminous with what we ought to, with what we ought or ought not to do. The civil law can punish or uh, reward only those actions over which it has some knowledge and control, and its uh, punishments are themselves limited. In the view of St. Thomas, it was only uh, divine law that could direct itself to our inner selves, where the ultimate disorders originate. But even here, we have, we were addressed freely. Thou shalt not was not uh, primarily a coercion, but an appeal to reason and obedience. It was like Socrates on the way back from the Piraeus, an effort to make divine persuasion, uh, the norm of our inner lives, a norm that could be understood in terms uh, of the reasonable experience we had, uh, we had with our own uh, efforts to uh, legislate. In his Harvard address, Alexander Solzhenitsyn was concerned that the law itself could be used uh, as a substitute for truth. Observance of the law substituted for the natural law or uh, the city of speech or the city of speech, because law was seen merely as the uh, as the abstract formulation of, of will. In other words, a typical artifact. Of modernity. So then it said the limits of right, of human rights and rightness are determined 
by a system of laws. And such limits are very broad. Every conflict is solved according to the letter of the law, and, uh, and this is considered to be the ultimate solution. If one is uh, right from the legal point of view, nothing more is required. Nobody may uh, mention that one could still not be entirely right and urge self-restraint or uh, renunciation of these rights and call for a sacrifice and uh, selfless risk uh, of his life. It would, this would uh, simply sound absurd. Voluntary self-restraint is almost unheard of. Everywhere, everybody strives towards further uh, expansion of the extreme limits of legal forms. The end of life. The end of the comment on Folksolvenism. Here we have the ultimate irony. The corruption of law is the observance of law. That the point Solzhenitsyn made is valid. The civil law is not morality itself, but a guide to morality that has its foundations elsewhere. The lawless, uh, it is often said, are the freest. Only those who observe the law are free uh, in uh, the counterclaim. Only the truth will make us free. Aristotle had said that politics is the highest of the practical sciences, but not the highest of the sciences as such. Law, he said, is reason without passion. Yet all human beings have passion. The law, in its purity, remains to be more than human uh, in the human condition in which most human beings exist. Rousseau is the father of those modern thinkers who seek to locate the cause of evil outside of human, outside the human heart, where St. Augustine had rightly located it. If the causes of evil lie outside of ourselves, the seriousness of our existence lies outside of our will uh, with those who form states and uh, write constitutions. The multiplicity of laws will seem to uh, contribute uh, to the level of, um, of morality. So Zanitsyn argued that the opposite is true, that the multiplicity of laws more often is a sign of the abdication of law uh, at a deeper level. Law without a justification of law is dangerous. Aquinas asked the question of whether the good man was the subject of the law. Because of his theory of law, being addressed to the intelligence of the law observer, 
Aquinas argued that the good man, the saint, uh, did not observe the law. Aquinas meant by the good man what means that the good man uh, did what the law required, but that uh, in seeing the reasonableness of any given law, uh, the wise and the good man observed the law uh, willingly, not like worship. He was someone who understood why it was promulgated in the manner that in which it was uh, formulated. The good citizen, the good man, was free from uh, was free then because he observed the law not from fear of punishment, but because he saw the wisdom or necessity of a given law demanding obedience, demanding observation. Freedom and law were two aspects of the same principle. This conclusion still requires the asking of whether the law was good. But in principle, this understanding of law as uh, promulgated, addressed to the reason of uh, the one who uh, obeys, is uh, the solution of Plato's uh, philosopher-king problem, or Aristotle's monarchy. That is, how do citizens participate in ruling uh, in the best regime, even while they remain merely citizens or philosophers? The spirit of the law. The function of the philosopher was to make a distinction uh, between who is good and who is bad, and who is not. The letter of the law is not the law, but it is the statement of its intelligibility. This intelligibility is found uh, is the foundation that allows us to judge whether the law is, as stated, needs to be uh, uh, corrected. Each case is different. Law by itself is inadequate. Uh, and these applications are particulars of each case. What substituted for the law was not the letter of the law, but the law plus the accurate knowledge of the circumstances in which the law was to exist in the light of a knowledge of the nature of man, his truth. Law had to yield to truth uh, to be itself, and freedom was not lawlessness, but the complete observation of the law, including its intelligibility, even in obedience. Aquinas had asked whether it was necessary to break the letter of the law to observe the law. He held that sometimes it was necessary to keep the spirit of the law in order to keep the law itself. The letter of the law was not the law, but the law of reason always held. Uh, those who um, uh, observed the law uh, reasonably were able to understand the particulars in which uh, in which each life must be exist or each life must exist. Christian revelation is not itself a code of laws. It argues that it is necessary seek the end of the law in itself in all cases of uh, the observance of the law.
the end of the law is the love of God and the uh, uh, sacrificial love of one's fellow. Friendship with both God and man uh, is the end of the law. The new law was not a set of doctrines or, or precepts, though it does not deny that these exist in reason and when reasonable ought to be uh, formulated. But Revelation is addressed to the ultimate good of each individual as seen in his given and every uh, free act. The risk of the law is that nothing is unimportant. At any moment, the possibility of choosing against the law is present, and freedom and law go hand in hand because freedom lies within our very act. But this freedom can choose against itself and against law. Indeed, it can corrupt positive law itself. It can choose to make its own law in every act freely uh, freely puts into the world. And every act is in its uh, uh, deciding potentially uh, is opposite. So any act can, until we actually put it in existence, can be the opposite. The dignity of man is rooted not only in his nature, but in the freedom active in and through uh, his same nature. And this dignity appears both in what man is and in what uh, any person can do uh, low at any moment. Without this particular uh, nature, man could not act freely. But we do not know how he will choose until he acts. Even God is limited by this freedom. In this sense, damnation and salvation are very close to each other. Plato was not wrong to him that the tyrant and the philosopher king were quite uh, possibly the same person. It was not a question of one man being more intelligent than another, but of choosing different goods, different ends, something that was possible to everyone. The limitation of God uh, of God derives from the condition of truth, liberty, and law. There can be no answer to the violation of law or truth that does not involve the freedom of the uh, violator. Forgiveness, repentance, and purpose of amendment are the modes in which acts of crime or disorder confront the doer of evil acts. Law is concerned with justice. And law is concerned with the fact that justice is not the highest virtue, uh, which, uh, with the fact that justice by itself easily leads to injustice. No response to injustice can deny the fact of injustice. The condition of uh, forgiveness and repentance is to understand that injustice or any other vice, uh, as you have to understand what it is. The 
we cannot rightly have sorrow for what uh, was not wrong. The web of um, communication on which society is based requires the upholding of truth, the recognition that virtue and vice are distinct and permanently what they are in an intelligible manner, that acts of vice have their own consequences, even where they must be allowed uh, for fear of greater damage. When Aquinas insisted on the promulgation, that promulgation was the essential element, an essential element of the definition of law, he was aware that human society is composed of intelligent human beings locked in argument. Yet argument is not for its own sake, but for the sake of discovering what is true, not merely on the great issues, but also on those acts and deeds of everyday life. Aquinas recognized that human beings do not themselves uh, possess divine intelligence. They do possess intelligence, however, and their intelligence can be addressed by any in intelligence, including uh, that of the divinity. This possibility means that law is intended not merely for the ongoing um, affairs of society, but also for the understanding of those beings who possess intelligence. Reason is not sufficient to rule the normalcy of mankind who are not always uh, ready to follow it. But reason is the respect that each uh, law and each violation of the law owe to the act uh, we send forth into the world. When Solzhenitsyn uh, remarked that the observance of the law uh, could be a sign of greater civil evil uh, in the nature of law. He recalled the uh, tradition that understood the that positive law must be set within the range of a higher law. The law is not merely what the law giver uh, proposes, but what reason proposes itself. The Communication of intelligence with intelligence is at the root of our relation to nature, to one another, and to God. The purpose of liberty and of law is to lead to the truth, and truth as known can only be found in a being who possesses an, an intellect. The life of the being who is uh, to know the truth, who is to know the consequences of his own acts and to acknowledge the disorder that surrounds his faults and errors is not a complete in society, or at least not in civil society. And this is the truth that limits civil society to be what it is and only what it is. No other truth uh, uh, makes us uh, so free. That law, in St. Thomas's view, has one remarkable end or result that leads to the final condition 
consideration about the incompleteness of political philosophy and how it, in those uh, persistent manners, draws our attention to issues that philosophy itself leaves uh, unsettled. Aquinas said that the end of the law is that we be friends. This purpose, of course, is rooted in Aristotle's discussion of friendship in the ethics. What it means is that the highest end of law, society, and virtue, the, uh, the web of communication in the highest thing, leads uh, political philosophy directly to the highest uh, realities and questions. The treatment of law is, in many obvious ways, as I have suggested from Aquinas, deals with uh, disorder, with uh, imperfections, uh, imperfect men, and yet law is also for the perfect, for the good man and the good philosopher. It is precisely here where we most want to be that the proper questions formulated in political philosophy and philosophical research for the highest intelligible answers can be found. The end of the chapter. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.